0: Have you been stressed, anxious, or worried? Have you felt pangs of loneliness in recent times? Are you longing for greater connection with others in the world around you? In a phrase, are you looking for happiness? You are not alone. Millions of others are seeking this feeling of spiritual, mental, and physical wellness too. This podcast explores the underlying causes of unhappiness and shares with us the secrets of rewriting the frequent thoughts and redirecting the common behaviors that keep us in that state. Join forensic psychologist and best-selling author Dr. Nihal and her guests as they dive deep in the realm of psychological wellness and explore ways of finding happiness on demand.
1: Good day. Welcome to this podcast. I'm Alan Edwards, and today we're talking to clinical psychologist Dr. Joan Nehal. Dr. Nehal has written a Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Happy is the New Healthy. Dr. Nehal knows a lot about grief counseling and there's a lot of grief in this world. Recently, there was an accident outside Dauphin, Manitoba between a bus and a truck that claimed 15 lives and injured 10 people. The community was absolutely stunned by this and of course, everybody was grieving. People lost relatives, people lost grandfathers, fathers, uh, important people in the community. To have 15 people uh, lost in one day and seriously serious injuries to others, there's a lot of grief. Dr. Nihal, how can people cope with this type of, of grief?
2: You know, Alan, that's a good question because we're dealing with grief that's not just a loss in terms of a death, but we're talking about environmental, unexpected things like a tornado in Alberta recently, and people lost their homes. 15 people lost their homes as a result of this. So we're looking at environmental disasters as well. So let's first of all, I think your question is brilliant. I think first of all, let's go into what grief is. And then I'm going to talk about good grief. And then we will look at or you probably would want me to To look at how to deal with it. But first, let's teach our listeners what grief is all about. What do you think, Alan?
1: Well, I think it's a process to deal with uh, extreme loss. That's my feeling.
2: And Pauline Boss talks about ambiguous loss or the loss of the opportunity to interact with someone while they're still alive, for example, a breakup of a relationship when you deliberately make the effort not to see the person or when there's no closure, say, for example, a person missing in war and wondering if that person will resurface or not. That's ambiguous loss. Or you're looking at your parents suffer from Alzheimer's and you've lost your parents psychologically, though not physically. So it happened as well during COVID-19 when we weren't allowed to socialize with our friends. That's ambiguous loss as well. So she talks about that as one form of grief. But the other part of grief that I think is very important is to to look at uh, the finality of it for some of us. When you've lost someone, or you've lost your house, or you've lost your savings, or you've lost your will to live, What are the primary symptoms of grieving disorder? Well, the first one is yearning. A yearning for the deceased preoccupies the person. And this loss creates dramatic symptoms. Look, basically a grieving person in their everyday lives will oscillate between dealing with the loss and what I call restoration stressors, dealing with how to continue with life How to have a semblance of normalcy now that my spouse is gone, for example, as one of my patients said, and I've got to deal with income tax. I don't know how to do utility bills. So those of us who are experienced in loss are familiar with those loss stressors. Restoration stressors are things like learning how to do things that the other person used to do. And you might find when you're going through grief that you sometimes you're able to laugh with friends, you can go to a movie, but then without warning, the tears well up and heart pains appear. And so grief for me is characterized by a contradiction. On the one hand, it's a complex and painful mixture of thoughts and emotions triggered by the loss of someone. On the other hand, it's a natural and positive healing process that plays an essential role in helping us work through and let go of the often unavoidable drama of loss. It's experienced most commonly in the context of death. But as you pointed out earlier on, There are environmental disasters as well. Therefore, it comes in many forms, like the loss of a relationship, loss of wealth, loss of your job. And did you know it came from the Latin word gravis, which translates into heavy burden? It emerges from us as a heavy burden of emotions triggered by the loss. And we're all likely to experience grief at some point. But each of us will... Experience it differently based on our expectations and beliefs about the nature of grief. So, some researchers like Strohbanschut in 1998 grouped the grief symptoms into five categories, which I think are very useful physical, cognitive, emotional, interpersonal, and lifestyle. So, what are some of the physical signs of grief? That could include loss of appetite, difficulty sleeping, fatigue, loss of energy. Physical pains, a suppressed immune system, and even episodes of severe, profound weeping. I had a patient who said to me, I spent the whole night whole night crying hard, Dr. Neal, and I'm still crying. She'd lost her husband in, in a car crash, and her husband was just 32 years old, and she was 25, and she had her six-month-old son with her when the police came to tell her this. So that's profound grief, but they're also cognitive symptoms. It can influence how we think and perceive the world. Grief subjects, or when you're going through grief, you can feel dissociated or distant from reality. It's almost like you're looking at yourself going through the motions, and you have feelings of disbelief concerning the loss. You can experience confusion, memory problems, lack of focus, short attention span. So those are some of the cognitive issues. What about the emotional symptoms? Look, they can include depression, guilt, anger, hostility, uh, social anxiety, separation anxiety, despair, feelings of isolation. And these emotions will occur at different times, not necessarily sequentially. And what about interpersonal problems? Grief is characterized, just like depression, by social withdrawal and feelings of distance and resentment towards relationships that could have been healthy before. I had a patient say to me, I can't go to my book club anymore. I feel so distant from these people. They're so happy. So sometimes you feel a lack of connection with others. Some others tell me they feel like a fifth wheel. What are some of the lifestyle symptoms of grief? Sometimes people can't get out of their pajamas. They can't go through daily routines. They feel a heaviness. And they stay away from activities that, in the past, they found stimulating, like socializing, for instance. There's anger as well that will happen. And anger is triggered when the grieving person perceives that what is happening is unjust and frustrating. Anger actually provides a way for them to express their powerlessness and despair. So this is an important point for the listener. The grieving person might appear to be hostile or bitter, and it's crucial for us to be compassionate if we're on the receiving end and we're at the brunt of their anger. Understand that their anger is just a symptom of of their deep grief, and it will pass as they go through the grieving process. Now, how long does grief last? The duration depends on the extent and the nature of what was lost. For some people, losing a pet is like losing a child. For some people, losing a spouse is the end of the world. Following the loss of a job, for instance, you will feel grief as well, but it might not be as long as the other forms. And what are the five stages of grief? You know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was, she wrote her epic book. I believe it was in 1969 on grief and dying because she was working with terminally ill patients and getting them, at least trying to get them to come to terms with their death. And she gave us five stages. The first stage is denial, followed by anger, which is a failure to deny the loss. And this is followed by depression and eventually leads to acceptance and letting go of the person's loss. Now, David Kessler worked with Kubler-Ross, and he has written a book recently in which he talks about the sixth stage of grief, which is finding meaning. What's important to underscore, as I, I have found with my own patients, is that these stages aren't sequential. At one minute, you might experience all of these stages and feel you've been put in the blender and the pulse button has been pressed. You can emerge feeling scattered and desperately trying like Humpty Dumpty to put the pieces back together again, and you can't. So the grief process oscillates between a loss and a restoration orientation. The loss orientation involves acknowledging the loss and experiencing the associated pain as a necessary part of emotional healing. The restoration orientation involves stepping away from emotion and dealing with the more mundane practical lifestyle issues caused by what was lost, like paying utility bills, getting the snow removal done, getting the lawn done. Grief sometimes looks like a U-shaped curve. Now, that's important to look at, and that's actually very useful. If you can take the model of a U-shaped curve for grief, you can move from high morale and energy to low morale and hopelessness, and then cycle back to high morale and energy. The high point is the beginning of the curve, and that's characterized by the manic energy of denial, shock anger the low point in the middle of the curve is profound deep despair and depression and finally you cycle up to the high point of the curve the end of the curve which is the restoration of energy and morale as the losses are accepted life resumes grieving individuals exhibit increased activity in the amygdala And that's useful for us to know that's the reason that's the region in our brain, which is strongly associated with negative emotion and fear. And we see that on functional MRIs of a grieving person. And that will help us to be compassionate towards the grieving person. Remember, they're having a flood of negative emotion and fear. People describe grief as heartbreak. Haven't you heard that? Well, she died of a broken heart. Well, I got news for you. The grieving person may experience pain in their heart. Did you know that? That's called broken heart phenomenon. This refers to the increased risk of mortality following the loss of a loved one, and in particular, the risk of death from cardiovascular disease. The risk of coronary heart disease is twice as high in the six months following a client's loss and that is seen in O'Connor's research in 2019. In fact, O'Connor pointed out that this increased risk of heart disease was even more significant than the risk associated with smoking. So the physical stress associated with heartbreak should be taken quite literally. With time Most people will go through grief and the experience can be viewed in hindsight as a necessary and healthy process of letting go. Unfortunately, for some individuals, it's not so straightforward. The grief process can become obstructed as opposed to the U-shaped curve that represents the normal process or trajectory of grief. With complicated grief, the duration can stretch for over two years, and it can be transformed from being a healthy process into a serious mental health condition. And we use complicated grief to differentiate this form of grief from normal grieving. If normal grieving is a medicine, complicated grief is a serious allergic reaction to that medicine that requires medical assistance. Complicated grief can cause depression in the form of self-dislike, an inability to perform daily tasks, a generalized loss of interest in life, what we call anhedonia, an obsessive, painful interest, in returning to what was lost. So those basically are some of the things that we look for in terms of grief.
1: So I had a situation where I met a man socially last week, and we, he told me he had three kids in the conversation. And later on, I he mentioned something about living in North Vancouver. And I said, do all your three children live there? And he he stopped and looked at the ground and tears welled up. And, and he said, I lost my daughter in a house fire four weeks ago. And he went on to tell me about how there was a house fire in her basement suite and she couldn't get out. And uh, she was uh, in the health profession and she's gone now. And I didn't know what to say. And I wonder what you would, if he came to see you, what you would advise him because He said, you know, I'm never going to get over this.
2: I think the first thing I would do would be to acknowledge that the loss can be difficult, especially if it's the loss of a child. And what is helpful is to approach this loss through a structured positive framework in which I would be looking at ways for him to live a nuanced, different life while keeping the legacy of his daughter alive because experiencing the pain of loss is a necessary part of grieving. Journaling the loss can be very helpful. I've used that, I would use it with him. Setting aside time every day to focus on grief is very helpful because in that way, he would compartmentalize times when he was grieving versus times when he would attempt to function with a semblance of normalcy in his day-to-day life. Moving between the oscillation, in other words, Alan, of loss and restoration would be crucial with him to get him to do that. And active coping means that you directly address the source of your emotional pain. Look at the thoughts, look at the actions that change the way you look at it. I think that's active coping that we need to do. We need to look at avoidant coping skills that he might be using too. And that's like when he says to well, I'll never get over that. Uh, it, it's And it's more by saying that, actually, he's using a strategy that takes his mind off the event. I would rather see him journal. I'd rather see him doing something active, like speaking to a trusted friend or mere acquaintance like you of, of his pain. I think that would be very important, while the avoidance coping skill could be alcohol use. So that would be one of the things I would do. There's more that I would do with him. I'd get him to talk to me about his child, his daughter, because we can reframe the situation in which we focus on his thoughts or focus on the emotions, on how he feels about the loss of his child. Because it's normal for, that's something I'd be underscoring with him that it's very, very normal to feel that there are no positives in his loss right now. The wound is very raw and what I'm doing is taking the Band-Aid off it and it's bleeding and it hurts. So I need to be respectful of that. But with positive reframing, he's not minimizing the importance of his loss. Rather, I'll get him to focus on appreciating those aspects that might still connect him with his daughter. But by getting him to look at the legacy that she's left behind, can I incorporate some of that legacy moving forward into my life? Was it her humor? Was it a spark in her life? Was it in the way she helped people? Get him to laugh. And then another thing that I have found very useful, I would ask him about his, remember I said it earlier in our podcast, I would be asking him about his philosophical approach to life. Does he believe in an afterlife? What does he believe that happens when, People pass or people die. Uh, And I will want him to tell me what happens. A lot of my patients will tell me that they take solace in the hope that there is a life after this one. There is a God. Now, if he does not believe in that, that's fine, too. I would ask him, however, to do something to create a closure ritual that will resonate with his philosophical approach to life while valuing and respecting and treasuring the gift that his daughter was and is in his life. So acceptance is not about being okay with your loss. It's natural to feel that you'll never be That's what he started by telling you, and he's right. So instead, it's more about focusing on what comes next and how you learn to live with the loss. And this will create some positive emotions, such as curiosity, hope, gratitude, grateful that he had this gift of time in the journey with her. And this happens when you focus on readjusting to your new reality. It's a different perspective. It's like taking a photograph with a wide angle lens. Right now, he's just focused on zooming in on the foreground my daughter has gone, versus looking at the larger picture and asking himself, now, what have I learned from this loss? And how will it help me? What nuggets can I use from this? Can I glean from this moving forward? So we're problem solving, you know, and that I would I would look at. I would look at self-care, exercise, healthy diet, stress management, connecting with friends and family, and more important, focusing on his short-term goals. The last thing I would ask him to to tell me a little bit about would be emotional triggers. What gets him angry? Because, you know, unfortunately, us human beings, we really want to help people. And as a patient said to me once, a friend in need is a pest. And I said, yeah, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. Because people will come out with, platitudes like you know i know how you're feeling or you will get over this etc cetera, etc cetera. and that might trigger in him feelings of disconnect a feeling of anger resentment and i would caution him to forget about the words and look at the hidden agenda what are they really saying could it be i care i want to be there for you and above all i would encourage him to avoid making big changes in the immediate future and perhaps what comes to mind for me right now is what Kahil Gibran wrote. And I used it myself, actually, when my own brother died, unexpectedly. Uh, he's, Gibran says, grief is like a wall between two gardens.
1: Interesting. What I said to him, I said, I would never know how that would feel to lose a daughter, or a son, or any loved one that close. I would never know. Even though I was a TV news reporter for 25 years and dealt with all kinds of tragedy, I reported on it. I would ask people how would they like their loved one remembered, and believe it or not, nobody ever uh, declined to talk to me and, and help me put the story on of their loved one and why they were important and why everybody should care. What this man is going to do is he's going to follow through with the restoration of a car that he has, that he's part way through, and that's one way he's going to cope with the grief. And it's very interesting what you said, because I was watching television a couple of nights ago, and this his son was on talking about his sister's death, and he was talking about how the sister had volunteered in the community and how she gave back to the community. And he also said that we need to learn something from this, because her basement suite only had one entrance and exit. And I believe that would be an illegal suite. So uh, the word that from the fire department was that something was left on the stove and uh, she couldn't get to the door or the exit because there was only one. So her brother was focusing on what we can learn from her death. Very similar to what you had said. Focus on the positives. There aren't any when somebody dies, I guess, as far as grief goes but there is sharing information for the common good and that's what the family is doing now
2: yes that's so important it's i don't know if you read uh, in the new york times yesterday there was a case of this child at age 13 he suicided because the school i think it's called satan's a private school uh asked him to leave he was expelled because he was dis- he he was found to be dyslexic And the child killed himself.
1: What a tragedy.
2: The parents are now suing that school. Not because, just like this family is educating the public, not because they're going to get anything out of it, but rather to teach other people, the world, what can happen to your child when you entrust your child to a school system in which you're assuming that they're going to help my child develop his, you know, his social skills, his self-esteem, and this is what you do.
1: Yeah, Returning now to our, our subject matter, the loss of 15 people in a bus truck accident outside Dauphin, Manitoba, I believe the community was offering grief counseling. Also, people in Saskatchewan with the tornado where they lost everything they had. Yes, uh, that, That's just absolutely shocking. I mean, people can't really imagine one minute you have your family heirlooms and your photo albums and your your child's first toy, all these things that mean so much. And then the next moment they're gone along with your house. And I watched a, a woman in an interview saying that it's very hard for her to see the property she grew up on completely devastated. Everything is gone. So should, should everybody uh, seek out counseling?
2: Yes, I'm a strong believer in counseling, and I believe that the Psychological Association of Alberta, I know for a fact, I am offering free counseling services to people who have gone through fires, for instance, in Alberta. That's something on the Disaster Response Network, I do that. And I'm not the only one who does it. I'm sure that a lot of people in in psychology are offering this. And I think that when you feel that you're at your wit's end, you can't sleep well, you're just not functioning as you should. I think that's a time when you need to ask people around you, do you think that I should go for help? And usually people who live with you would be, really good barometers as to how you're doing. And they will say, yes, I think you should. And then you should. I mean, counselling used to have a bad name to it, but it really is a good thing to do. I use it as well. We all consume of the product, namely counselling, and I think it would really help.
1: So you take your own advice and when you need counselling, you seek it out.
2: You better believe it, because I have my mentor. I think that it's a really good thing to do. It's not something to feel, oh, well, you know, I must be neurotic and something's wrong with me. It's really good to have someone in your life that you can journey with, that who isn't your spouse, obviously, because that person is going to be partial. And you can discuss things, you know, like life changes, whatever. And, yeah, I believe
1: in it. And I sometimes, know- Sometimes people get the idea that this is all happening to me. It's just me. What's your comment on that?
2: Well, two things. It could be just them. We don't know. I need to know who the person is and what they're saying, first of all. And it could be that they have a point, that it is all about them, as well as it might not be. And in that case, we need some counseling. We need to look at cognitive therapy. We need to see where they're getting this thought from. And is it really a realistic thought grounded in reality? Or is there something underlying it that we need to look at? Some fear, some rejection, whatever is there. Let's bring it out into the session and let's look at it.
1: Anything else you'd like to say on grief? It's a very topical thing these days. There's a lot of misfortune and uh, misadventure in the world today, along with wars and rising interest rates and climate change and all these things that are impacting people, undoubtedly psychologically.
2: Correct, and I would say to you that we need to look at Viktor Frankl for a moment in during the Holocaust. Did he roll over and die? Did he say things were awful? Or did he find tragic optimism or hope? And he did. And if he could do it, why can't we? And I strongly do believe that we can practice gratitude. We can start looking at ways that we can help the environment. Remember, we're talking about eco-anxiety. We can do things and make a difference versus saying, oh, it's just so terrible, and let's just roll over and die. I disagree. If Franco could do it, we could all practice tragic optimism. In the face of tragedy, we can be optimistic. Optimism is like a muscle. You've got to train it. It's like you with your classic cars. You're restoring them. I'm restoring people to hope. Because without hope, there is no meaning. Without meaning, there is no hope.
1: Yeah, as you know, uh, in my life with the classic cars, I have something to look forward to every day. And and that's very important to me, and I hope other people have that as well. In the case of the man that lost his daughter, uh, I'm going to help him as I can uh, finish the restoration of his car. And uh, I hope he watches this uh, podcast and, and gets some insight on how he can move forward. It's a terrible tragedy. Nobody could ever minimize that. I wouldn't expect him ever to get over it. I don't think anybody would. The loss of a a 40-year-old daughter who was a volunteer in the community who contributed greatly and uh, had the misfortune to die in a house fire. That's terrible. Well, Dr. Joan Nihal, I certainly recommend your book, Happy is the New Healthy. It has a lot of insights in it, and I can't wait for our next podcast. Thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. And until next time, please join us for the next podcast. Have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you. Thank you for joining this discussion on happiness. We hope this helps to inspire you to lead a more joyful life. To dive deeper into the subject of happiness, be sure to check out Dr. Nihal's book, Happy is the New Healthy, available as an ebook or hardcover. For additional resources, visit our website at drnihal.com.
1: Until next time, stay happy.